work in our lives today. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, you got to hear, hopefully if you stayed at the end, you got to hear Connor and Leah share their testimony. Um, if you missed it, it is on our YouTube channel. You can go to the YouTube channel. You can catch that. Um, you guys are famous. You're online. I was going to send you the link so you can put it on your Facebook page or whatever, but you're out there. So uh, fortunately, our technology kept working through all that because we had some horrible issues last week where I, it was, yeah. So that stayed up at least long enough for the message, and then we got it back online. We're grateful for that. This morning... We have uh, Ken and Hannah Earnshaw that are going to come and share their testimonies with us. My husband said ladies first. So I just have to say, um, Pastor David and Pastor Mike make it look really easy to come up here and talk with everybody looking at them and they don't sound scared. My hat is off today. Sorry. So um, when Pastor Mike has been talking these last few weeks about Hezekiah, and he said several times that faith isn't faith until it's tested. And I can really resonate with that. And I would I would say for myself, faith isn't your own until you embrace it. And the reason I say that is I grew up in a Christian home, and the older I get, the more grateful I am for all the things that were not a part of my life growing up, things I didn't have to um, have to choose between when I was too young to make those choices. I'm glad that the Bible was always in our home. I had no question that my parents loved each other and they loved God and they loved us, and that's pretty tremendous, um, but that faith wasn't my own until it be, there was a certain point um, where we were at a, uh, a preaching conference. My dad was very active. Um, he was a seminary professor where, near where we lived, and he had taken our family to this preaching conference, and the pastor who was talking or preaching to all of us talked about unregenerated people within the church congregation and how people can go to church for years and years and not be genuine followers of Christ. And God's Holy Spirit put a finger right in my heart. And um, I knew that I was not a Christian. I was about 10 years old. I knew I was not a Christian. I knew I needed to do something about that. Um, so I went forward and I talked with the pastor's wife and I prayed. And I know that there was a distinct change in my life after that. My faith, it wasn't just my family's faith anymore. It was my faith. And um, <clears throat> I think of the words from 1 John that say, um, for 1 John 1, 5, this is the message we have from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we do not practice the truth, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Um, and as I look at my life before I was 10, um, I can see that I had no desire to be with other Christians. I had no desire to read the Bible. Um, I was constantly out of sorts with my mother in particular, and after the work of the Holy Spirit in my life and me choosing to embrace that faith for myself, all those things changed, and I remember it. I remember it very clearly. Uh, uh, I wanted to be a church. I'd never had that desire before. I wanted to read the Bible. I wanted to know what it said for myself. Um, I wanted to have a clear conscience before God. When I would sin, I just wanted to confess it right away. And um, that's something only God can do. Um, and then later that year, I was baptized at our church by immersion. And um, I'm just grateful that God has seen me through all these um, years and helped me to grow and never let me uh, just wallow in my sin. But as I had difficulties and his Holy Spirit would work on my heart, he would give me the ability to embrace the truth and keep moving forward. Um, and so, uh, wait, I'm going to talk about why you wanted to be a church. You're, you're adjusting. Okay. 
Um, so one of the benefits of being a military family is uh, we have visited many churches over the course of our marriage. And um, one thing that we have found for our family is uh, we don't really mind what goes on at the church. We're not necessarily interested in programs, but when we can hear good preaching and be fed every week, that is the most important thing to us. And so the first Sunday we came, we're like, yes, they nerd out over the same things we do. <laughs> we just love it. And um, also the people that are attracted that, to that kind of preaching, those are our kind of people. So um, that's why we would like to try. So. So, so it's not like we don't like programs, stuff like that. Those are the icing on the cake, you know, in a WANA program and different you know, churches we've been in, involved in. But the foundation, the fundamental is the sound preaching and teaching the congregation what the Bible says. So, you know, we live in an age of, I deserve this, I earn this, it's my right to have these things and whatever I've worked for. But in the eyes of eternity, anything other than eternal punishment is way more than we deserve it, than I deserve it. So, similar to Hannah, I grew up in church as well. My family was in church every Sunday morning, evening, and Wednesday nights. It was part of our heritage. Um, it was just the way things were done in the South and in the Bible Belt where I grew up. I vividly remember one uh, Sunday evening, the pastor, uh, Dr. Martin, uh, preaching about the rapture and describing in detail what it would mean for the world when Christ called all those who believed in him, his followers, up to heaven to be with him. There would be no warning for this. It would be in the twinkling of an eye, the sound of a trumpet uh, and whoosh. Everyone that was left behind were those who did not believe in Jesus. And I'm sure they would believe afterwards, but it would be too late. The, the result would be eternal separation from God, separation from families and friends. Well, this scared me very much. I was only about four or five years old at the time. So when I got home, I asked my mom to help me. I knew I was a sinner, and this may come as a surprise, but I was a very naughty little boy. In fact, so the concept of sin wasn't hard for my mother to explain to me. There were many instances that she could point out and and logically helped me understand that I was a sinner. And she emphasized that God hates sin, and it is, it is detestable to him. God is perfect and cannot, cannot allow sin into heaven. And therefore, since I was a sinner, logically, I, I had sin in my heart, I could not be allowed into heaven. And I would be left behind. I'd be separated when all Christians were raptured up to be with him, with Jesus. But God loved me so much that he sent his son, Jesus, to die to earth to die on the cross for my sins. And because the only way to pay for the penalty of sin was to die, if I were to pay the penalty myself, then I would have to die and spend eternity in hell. Well, God allowed his son to pay the penalty of sin for me. And Jesus took that punishment for me. He gave me a present that all I had to do was accept it. And all I had to do was believe that Jesus died in my place. He died so that I did not have to. So that evening at the kitchen table, I remember I trusted Jesus, and he paid for my sins. I was baptized in the weeks following at church, and I remember gripping onto the, the window, whatever, there in the water and, and, and being immersed. But that's not the end of my grace story. My Christian walk to date has been what I consider average as far as I see it among other Christians here in, in America. I, I know that I'm still a big fat sinner, but by God's grace, I know that I'm saved because I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. So when I say average, I mean the struggles that I face and deal with in my Christian walk, I think are similar to what other Christians face. See, I've experienced times of closeness to God, but in times of my rebellion, I've definitely been out of fellowship with Him. Through the, through the years, I've been to camps, I've thrown my stick into the fire a few times, and been to revivals and mission conferences, and dedicated and rededicated my life to God. And I've enjoyed the warmth of being close to Him, but also the warmth of the love of being welcomed back, the prodigal son. Consistency. You see, that's a character trait that I, that's, I seem to run out of on a regular basis. You can just ask my wife. But... God has always, God has been and always will be faithful and consistent to me. When I was younger, I always thought that as I got older, it would get easier 
you know, with more maturity, more discipline, more clear-headedness, the ability to see destructive habits and tendencies in my life, more time in the day to do what was right. And, and I think that is part of the lie that, devil in, that the devil influences us all with. So now that I'm married with children, who would have thought, bless us, these specific blessings are indicators of God's unmerited favor to me. So as a relationship that started into fear, me being eternally separated from my mom, my parents, those that love me, has moved into one of, of an awe-inspired love. You know, it still goes back to the fact that, for me, I'm really, truly one who deserves nothing other than hell. And anything other than that is God's grace, unmerited favor bestowed on my life. So, we're glad to be here. Thank you for sharing with us this morning. Uh, that officially starts their two-week journey um, if, uh, toward the final steps toward membership. Um, if you have any, if any biblical objections uh, to Ken and Hannah becoming members of the church, you can email them to us at elders at ncfchurch.org. Uh, also, you have another week to send anything in on Connor and Leah uh, by email to elders at ncfchurch.org. We don't anticipate uh, much mail. Uh, from either of you. So we're really grateful for that. Um, and we're grateful that you want to be a part officially of this church body. And so we're looking forward to celebrating that in the near future. Um, if uh, if you would like to know more about church membership, uh, whether you're online or here, we'd like to know more about uh, the opportunity to have an opportunity to share your testimony. Maybe it's been a long time since you've done that and you're like, I should really do that again. Uh, then please let David or I know. Um, so thank you again for that. David's going to come and share, I, I believe, the final message today from the book of Isaiah. Um, it's not the final chapter of Isaiah, but it's the final one that we're going to cover because we're going to try to cover the rest of the Old Testament still before summer. Um, so he's kind of pushing me along a little bit. And so he's going to share with us from the book of Isaiah this morning. We're really excited about that. Uh, so why don't we just have a, a quick prayer um, and just thank God for the testimonies that were shared. and. Uh, and look, pray for David as he comes to minister to us through the word. Father, we thank you for uh, grace stories, stories that we can share with each other and with the world around us because of the grace that you have shown us. Father, we know that we deserve nothing um, but death, as, as, was remind, as was shared this morning. We thank you for your love and your mercy, that you adopt us, that you accept us, you forgive us, you embrace us. You love us because of Jesus Christ, and that all we have to do is accept that gift. I thank you for uh, my brothers and sisters in this family that have accepted Jesus Christ, and I pray for those that we know that haven't. Father, help us to be faithful to share our grace stories with them and to, be, to share your grace with them so that they can come to know you personally. Father, I thank you for a chance to learn about you through your word. And again, ask for your anointing and your blessing upon David as he comes and shares uh, about the Messiah and about the one who sacrificed for us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Ken and Hannah, for sharing. Um, you know, sharing our, our testimonies, our, our grace stories, sharing about our relationship with God can certainly be an intimidating thing, whether it's, you know, in front of your church family or um, to a stranger, or even sometimes I think the most intimidating people can be our own immediate family if we know they aren't on the same page as us. Um, but it's it's one of the most powerful and important things we can do as Christians, I believe. Um, so it's always a blessing to get to hear. Um, so yeah, I, I appreciate that. We are, you know, as far as I know, unless Mike decides to do something else because uh, he did just change change up the schedule like last night as far as what we're doing the next few weeks. Uh, but as far as I know, this is going to be our last week in the book of Isaiah, at least for a while. You know, we'll probably down the road at some point come back to it. But, um, you know, so far we've 
been going through the book. We've spent a lot of time really in the first half of the book. There are 66, I believe, chapters in the book of Isaiah, and we've spent um, a lot of time in the first, you know, 39 books. Uh, and, you know, we looked at in, in the first half, there are, there's, Isaiah goes over a variety of ways that God is pronouncing judgment on Israel, on the surrounding nations, and for the whole world, uh, as well as kind of peppering in some hope for Israel and for the whole world in this promise of the Messianic King. And we looked at uh, several of those promises leading up to Christmas. Um, but the majority of the judgment and the majority of the book in, is really focused and directed towards Israel, and it points to the coming exile to Babylon. So chapters you know, 1 through 39 are pretty heavy on that impending doom, talking about the exile with those little glimpses of the Messiah, uh, glimpses of hope. And then you know, Mike pointed out a couple weeks ago that once you get to chapter 40, it's like you step into this whole new book. Uh, and people have split it up into two or even three different books of Isaiah. The tone totally changes when you hit chapter 40. Uh, it starts off with the words, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Uh, and, and the focus shifts to more of the return from exile. So it's post-exile and, and the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises to Israel, which would all be brought about by this Messiah figure, God's chosen one. Remember, that's what Messiah means, is, is chosen one. So we've looked at how Isaiah describes this Messiah as one who would restore humanity back to that Eden ideal. He'd be called Emmanuel. We looked at that virgin birth prophecy, um, and it was really about this, this Messiah being called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that was a big deal. And he would lift up the oppressed, and he would judge the oppressors. And this Messiah, this chosen one, the anointed holy one of Israel, would be a king in the Davidic line. He'd be a descendant of the great King David. And the Messiah is depicted not just in Isaiah, but we've seen this throughout all the prophets, as the Messiah being this great king, the perfect king. He'd be an even greater David, or better yet, like we just looked at the story of Hezekiah, he'd be an even greater Hezekiah. You know, Hezekiah was a king who did give Judah, at least, you know, half of Israel. He gave Judah hope. He gave them salvation, even though it was just for really his lifetime. Um, but when you think of a great king, I want to ask you guys this. Thinking of just this, uh, a great king, what qualities come to mind? Um, you know, thinking of a leader who, who's conquering empires, and he sits on a throne, he's ruling with his scepter in hand, you know, what kind of character traits or personality traits would you expect out of a king like that? Anyone? Strong, yeah, that's probably the first word that came to my mind. Wise, yep, good one. Just, uh-huh, yep, he's going to be pronouncing judgment, you want him to have a good sense of justice. Sovereign. So define sovereign, Mike. What he says. Yeah, so powerful, really. You know, he has the power and influence to whatever he says, you know, so let, as it is written, so let it be done. That kind of, you know, sovereignty or control over, you know, what is happening in his kingdom. Now, I would certainly expect qualities like that, you know, strength, courage, tenacity, boldness, and leadership. And if you think of some of the great kings of Israel's past, um, you, you might also associate them with those things like the political power and influence or affluence, the great wealth um, and abundance. That's something that usually you think of a king as having, you know, he's like the richest man in the kingdom because he's the king. <laughs> and you would think of the Messiah, you know, if he's going to be the greatest king Israel has ever seen, he must surely surpass all those who came before him, right? In all of those ways, all of those traits. And don't forget, you know, we're talking about kings, and we've talked about kings a lot, but the, the Messiah must not only surpass the greatness of Israel's kings, but also of Israel's greatest prophets, and even, you know, her priests. Uh, we see these things in, throughout the prophets, that he must be greater than Moses, one of the greatest prophets 
who led the people out of slavery from Egypt, out of Egypt and into the promised land. And he's, you know, Moses spoke with God face to face so much that his own face was shining and so glorious that his own people couldn't even bear to look at him. His own appearance was transformed. And he delivered the law, and he basically was the officiant for the wedding ceremony between God and the people of Israel. He was there to make those wedding ties. And he must also, so the Messiah is going to be even greater than that. Right, and even greater than you know Elijah, which we haven't talked about yet, but Lord willing, we will later on this year. Um, but also talking about the priests, you know, he'll be greater than Aaron, the first high priest, or any of the Levites whose you know incredibly sacred role was to intercede on behalf of the people. They provided atonement for the sins. They facilitated communion between the people and Yahweh, making sure their relationship could be. Uh, sustained, and they curated the, the temple, this pure and holy space where heaven and earth intersected. Speaking about all those roles, those three roles and all the things that are associated with those, those are some high expectations all wrapped up into this Messiah figure. They're magnificent roles. To do all of that in one person <laughs> and to do it better to do it perfectly without failing and without dying. You know, because Moses, he died and the people were left without his leadership. Hezekiah, things were great in his lifetime, but he died. You know, every priest, every, even the greatest of the high priests eventually died. But that's how Isaiah and the other prophets spoke of the Messiah, as he would be that guy. And that's why Israel had so much anticipation for this person to show up and, and restore them to their former glory, you know, once and for all. However, what we're going to talk about today is none of that, <laughs> because Isaiah does also describe the Messiah in, in one other way, and it's, it's rather surprising, I mean, not to us if we know the story, but if you were reading Isaiah, it would be very unexpected in contrast to these other roles, even shocking, because it just doesn't fit in with this magnificent image whether you look at it as a king or a prophet or a priest or even more, all three in one. And that's the prophecy that Isaiah um, presents of the Messiah being the suffering servant. And that's what we're going to look at today. We find that in chapter 53 of Isaiah. So no, we're not going through uh, to the very end of Isaiah, but really from chapter 40 on to the end is, is full of, um, again, comfort, peace, uh, encouragement, and hope, and most of it is, it kind of fits in with the other images of the Messiah and, and the restoration of Eden, but this chapter 53, really at the end of 52, is kind of the, the one piece that stands out that we couldn't skip over because this is, this is totally different from everything else we've heard about the Messiah so far. Um, it's, it's this portrait, we refer to it as the suffering servant, just as a kind of a, a shortcut, but we're going to look at it today. And, and paradoxically, Isaiah says that this suffering servant will be exalted and, and glorified somehow through his suffering and humiliation. So it's not the image of the magnificent king, a miraculous prophet, or, you know, just a fantastic priest. So let's take a look, and I'm going to start, it actually starts in chapter 52, verse 13. So it's the last three verses of 52, and then, and then the rest of 53 we're going to read together. says, see, my servant will be successful. And this is God speaking. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance will, was so disfigured that he did not look like a man, and his form did not resemble a human being. I'm going to pause just as a side note. As we go through this passage, you'll notice it, he, Isaiah kind of flips between future tense present tense, and past tense, and that's something you just kind of have to get over as part of reading the prophets. And we've kind of <laughs> talked about this, how the prophets will talk in all three tenses interchangeably, um, and he is talking about a future event, but he'll, you'll see it in past tense, his appearance was so disfigured. It's like it's already happened, but it's going to happen. Just, just a side note there. 
His form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him, for they will see what had not been told them, and they will understand what they had not heard. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of a dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains. But we, in turn, regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but was with the rich man at his death, because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. All right, so that's a fairly long passage uh, that we just read. So I'm just going to summarize a few of the highlights, or I, I should say the lowlights for this Messiah, this suffering servant figure uh, from these verses. So the first point is that he would be successful and lifted up and exalted, which sounds good, right? That starts off in, in 52.13. Great, yeah, that's what we know that tracks for the Messiah, right? Sounds good. But then goes right into saying how he'll be disfigured and appalling. And you're like, wait, what? That's, that doesn't sound so good. And then he'll have un, an unimpressive appearance. He'll be despised and rejected by people. He'll be familiar with suffering and with sickness. He'll be oppressed and afflicted. He'll be humble and silent. He's not going to even stand up for himself. And he'll be declared as wicked, and he'll be counted as a rebel, even though he's innocent and not found to be violent. And then, worst of all, he'll be killed? Like, what? That's, we're talking about the Messiah here. And yet you're, you're stuck with this, this package of this suffering servant figure. And it's a very poetic passage. It's beautifully written. But it paints a very ugly picture, doesn't it? It's in, and it's in the middle, again, of this long stretch of comfort and hope in Isaiah. You're reading along about the redemption and salvation and restoration, and then bam! What in the world is, is this? And now, for those of us familiar with the story of Jesus, you know, the parallels that we can see here to Jesus are probably pretty obvious. And it's easy to see why Isaiah is, is one of the most quoted uh, books in the New Testament. Uh, Psalms is the first, I believe, and then Isaiah. Uh, they're the most frequently quoted by Jesus himself and then by the other New Testament writers. And we're going to get to Jesus in a minute and see, you know, how he fulfilled this. But first, I just kind of want to pause and consider for a moment 
from an Old Testament perspective, um, how would this prophecy have been received at the time? You know, during just this incredibly desperate and needy low point in Israel's history, they're just full of discouragement and despair. So you try picture reading this, or more likely you'd be hearing it read to you um, in, in a synagogue. As a Jew, you know, during the exile or even after the exile, during the 400 years period of time between the exile, uh, the return from exile, and when Jesus did come, hear this passage read to you. And if you, if, you know, if I were in that situation, I'm looking for the, the coming of the Messiah, I wouldn't be very encouraged by this depiction of what Messiah is supposed to be. I would, you know, I want stories of a conquering king who's going to establish a powerful kingdom or of a prophet wielding fire from heaven and, and obliterating my enemies. And yes, even of a priest who brings the presence of God to the people, to the temple, and absolves us of our sins. So, you know, we have nothing to worry about there. Not this. This guy is just, he sounds pathetic compared to that picture we were just talking about earlier. And, the, and the, that's exactly how people reject, uh, react to him. They reject him because, because he's so pathetic. According to Isaiah, he will be despised and rejected. So what are the implications of that? How on earth does that re- lead to exaltation and glory? Because that's how it started off. He'll be successful and exalted. But this? How does that save Israel from oppression if he doesn't stand up for himself and if he's killed at the end? And to be honest, you know, you don't really get the answers to that in Isaiah. Isaiah doesn't really unravel that mystery. And so I do think that there are probably a lot of people who weren't sure what to do with that. They probably explained it away in in certain ways that didn't uh, tie it to the Messiah um, and even still today, Jews will say, well, this is talking about Israel, not, not Jesus. Um, and in some ways, it does. It's a, one of those both and things. But it would probably have been even more tempting just to skim over it. You know, this wouldn't have maybe just let's skip that part of Isaiah or not try to explain it, skim over it. Uh, we, all, we still have passages like that. Sometimes we, we tend to have the temptation to not address, right? That's still, still a temptation as readers of the Bible. But if I really wanted to accept it uh, and understand it as much as possible with purely just the Old Testament context, I think maybe the first step would be to look for any other parallels to this or any precedents to this in the Old Testament. Elsewhere, you know, in the other prophets uh, and in the Old Testament narrative of Hebrew Scripture. So first of all, my question would be, Maybe was Isaiah the only prophet who described the Messiah this way? Does anyone have a guess? Who else described the Messiah this way? Nobody. <laughs> he, was, he was the only one. He was the only prophet who wrote about the Messiah's suffering in this way. You know, there are other places where God refers to either the Messiah or to Israel or to both as being his servant. So the servant part isn't really the, the most um, difficult part. It's really the suffering part. And Isaiah is the only one of the prophets who brings out this concept of the servant actually suffering and suffering profoundly, not just stubbing his toe, but this is a profound suffering in obedience to his role as the servant. So we, we get no help from the other prophets. So what about the other narratives of Scripture? What do we see from Israel's history. Can you think of any other examples of what we might call a suffering servant in the Old Testament? Anyone think of any? Now you think it's going to be a trick question because the answer to the other one is no. What was that? Jeremiah. And actually a lot of the prophets did suffer um, in their role as servants. So that's a um, a good point. Um, there are two, two main stories from the narratives, um, and Isaiah himself actually didn't always have a, a very good time either, uh, but there are two narrative stories that, that came to my mind, and the first one is the story of Job, because 
if only because you know, his is the quintessential Old Testament story of suffering in general. And in him, you know, you find an, an innocent, righteous, God-fearing man who ends up being afflicted with every type of suffering imaginable. And for what? You know, we read the story and the purpose of all this, well, it proved Job's faith, right? At the beginning of the story, we, we find this scene with the divine counsel where Yahweh is kind of bragging about how righteous Job is to the accuser, to Satan. Um, and he says, the Satan then responds, you know, it's just because he has a really good life. You've blessed him. I bet I can prove he's not really all that faithful. But then... <laughs> You know, the, the events of the story take place. In the end of the story, you might expect, well, then it ends with Yahweh going to the Satan and saying, ha, see, I told you so. But that's not the end of the story at all. We never really return to that scene. We don't, the Satan doesn't really come up again at all. The end of the story, we find Job's misguided friends who gave him all kinds of horrible advice being confronted by God's anger. I'm going to read, I think I have this passage here, yeah. It's uh, from chapter 42 of Job, verses 7 through 10. We're going to read this together. After Yahweh spoke these words to Job, they're really cool words, by the way, but for another time, Yahweh said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath has been kindled against you and against the two of your friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. So then, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job and offer a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job will pray for you, for I will certainly accept his prayer, so that it will not be done for you according to your folly. For you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did just as Yahweh had told them, and Yahweh accepted Job's prayer. Then Yahweh returned Job's fortune when he prayed to him on behalf of his friends. Thus Yahweh increased all that Job had twice as much as before. So just think about this for a minute. You have Job, who God refers to as his servant. He suffered innocently, and then at the end of the story, somehow this, the prayer of this innocent, suffering servant was acceptable to God on behalf of those with whom God was angry. So in other words, Job, you know, he was a righteous, suffering servant who interceded on behalf of others, saving them from God's wrath. And in the meantime, as Job interceded in the midst of his suffering, God restored him and exalted him, increased him twice beyond as much as before. And that's pretty cool. That's a pretty direct parallel to the suffering servant idea, and you can see the parallel probably to Jesus in that too. And sometimes I think we miss that in the story of Job. And of course, there is so much more to Job's story, but this is one major feature. That's It's pretty clear parallel when you put it right next to the, the Isaiah's portrait of the suffering servant. In fact, you know, it is really fascinating. There's all kinds of other parallels between Job and the rest of the Old Testament uh, leading up to the Messiah. If you ever want to go deeper into that, highly recommend it. But just, you know, for now, the point is here that there is a precedent here, at least, for the concept of a suffering servant interceding on behalf of others before God. That's the story of Job. There's one more story that does come to mind from the last part of the book of Genesis. It's towards the end of Genesis, you have the story of Joseph. Joseph was Abraham's great-grandson, and he was the victim of his brother's jealousy. You know, they sold him off as a slave, and he was brought to Egypt as a slave. And, you know, he wasn't, I'll say he wasn't necessarily entirely innocent, um, leading up to that, you know, the story kind of implies he was had a role in provoking his brother's jealousy, uh, which is at least unwise, if not sinful. Um, but other than that, you know, during his whole time in Egypt, after he was sold into slavery, he is described as really being blameless in his behavior. 
And yet, even though he continues to have faith in God and continues to do the right thing in the midst of hardship, he suffers repeated injustice at the hands of others. But all of that suffering he goes through culminates eventually in his exaltation over the whole of Egypt. And at the end of Genesis, in chapter 50, his brothers come to him after their father dies because they're fearing retribution. They think, oh, he was just being kind to us while our father was alive. So now they're worried that he's going to finally get back at them for all of the the trouble that they uh, made for him. So they come to Joseph essentially asking for mercy uh, in Genesis 50, verses 18 through 21. It says, His brothers also came to him, bowed down before him, and said, We are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And that verse 20 is probably the most famous quote, I think, from the story of Joseph. You know, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. I bring up this story, it's not so much a direct parallel to the suffering servant, but it is an example of a person suffering and going through things that just make no sense in the moment while he's going through them. And it seems even contrary to God's claim of being good and loving and just and rewarding the righteous and, and you know sticking up for the little guy. But when you have the larger story, the greater redemptive purpose of salvation is revealed in the end, because through Joseph, his whole family was saved, and the whole nation of Israel was saved through him, through his exaltation. So, you know, in the time after Isaiah and before Christ, you know, you might look at the story of Joseph and say, you know, that's kind of an encouragement, just a reminder that to see, although the suffering servant of Isaiah may not seem to make sense in that moment. Well, maybe it just makes sense in the overall bigger plan of, of God's economy and God's kingdom. And of course, that's always, you know, the story of Joseph is always a good reminder for us today, too, not just then, um, just to have faith in, in God's sovereignty and his perspective, because it's still so infinitely larger than ours. We can see, you know, it's, it's nice to be able to see the full picture with Joseph's story. And when it does come to understanding Isaiah's prophecy, we do have the blessing and the benefit of being able to refer to the New Testament. And we have a much bigger picture of the story than we would have um, in Isaiah's day. So we can look at the New Testament and see how Jesus did, in fact, fulfill the role of the suffering servant. And, you know, his suffering culminated in his arrest and his, his crucifixion. But even before that, Jesus began to fulfill the words of Isaiah in literal physical terms uh, by bringing healing to people. That was one of the major aspects of his ministry was just healing people's physical sickness and disease. And Matthew points this out in Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. It says, when evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. He drove out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick, so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. He himself took our weaknesses and carried our diseases. So that's a direct quote right there of Isaiah 53.4, which means then, if Matthew's identifying that with Isaiah 53, he's he's explicitly equating Jesus with the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. But one thing to remember is when Matthew wrote this, he wrote this in hindsight after he had seen the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Before that, Jesus' disciples really weren't able to see or accept that correlation between Jesus and the suffering servant and the implication that Jesus would eventually have to suffer and die in order to fulfill that role of the suffering servant until after the fact. But Jesus knew it. He knew it all along, and he came right out and said it multiple times. We see that in Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 31. It says, 
Jesus took this twelve aside and told them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked, insulted, spit on. And after they flog him, they will kill him. And he will rise on the third day. They understood none of these things. The meaning of the saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So Jesus said it pretty plainly, but they didn't understand it. In fact, Mark, the gospel according to Mark, he documents at least one time, uh, I wouldn't be surprised this wasn't the only time, but Peter really didn't understand it. And in fact, or maybe he actually did understand it, but just enough to really make him upset. We find that in Mark chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. Then he began to teach them, Jesus was teaching, that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. <laughs> Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. <laughs> and if you know, you know, Jesus did shut that down pretty quick. Uh, he called him the accuser. He called him Satan, get behind me. Um, so he shut that down, but it goes to show really how upsetting it would have been uh, to think of your Messiah in these terms. You know, it ticked Peter off. He stopped talking that way. He had the nerve to actually rebuke Jesus for saying that he would suffer and that he would die. So either they just didn't grasp the facts or maybe they're just in denial about what was to come, but they also missed a major piece of what Jesus was saying. In both of these passages, he said that he would rise again after three days. That's the truly miraculous part. Anyone can be tortured and die, but he said he would rise again after three days. And that would prove that he truly was the Son of God, the pure and holy sacrifice, meaning that his death would actually mean something, that he would be able to take on the sins of the world. And that's you know, the exaltation part, the resurrection would be the exaltation that was mentioned in chapter 52 of Isaiah, um, 52.13. And remember, this whole suffering servant package is unique, not just because it claims that the Messiah would, you know, would suffer, but that by suffering, he would be crowned with glory. And of course, that is exactly what happened, and eventually the disciples got it after they saw what happened and after they saw him raise, rise from the dead. And Jesus did he actually stay around for a while after that. You know, after dying and resurrecting, he wanted to make sure they got it, to make sure his disciples understood who he was, what had just happened, make sure it was very clear. But then eventually he did leave them. You know, a cloud took him into heaven and he sent the Holy Spirit to empower them to continue the work that he started. And we read all about that in Acts, and I know I'm kind of flying through like a whole New Testament story. And, you know, Lord willing, later this year, we will be looking at the New Testament, um, unless it gets pushed to 2022, you never know. But we, we are hoping to go through the book of Matthew later on this year. Um, and after, but after all that, you know, we read about how in Acts, um, the disciples received the, the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 3 of Acts, I'm going to read a fairly long passage. If you, I'm not going to have it on the screen. So if you want to turn to um, Acts chapter 3, we come to a scene where it really kind of all comes full circle. And you have Peter uh, teaching people, and it's kind of obvious he really gets who the Son of God really is, and he's made all those connections and this is right after Peter and John healed a lame man who couldn't walk in the temple. Uh, and that really caused a lot of, it drew a lot of attention. Uh, so in, I'm going to pick up in verse 11 of Acts chapter 3. While he, the man they just healed, was holding on to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran toward them in what is called Solomon's colonnade. When Peter saw this, he addressed the people. And listen, listen to what Peter says to the people. Fellow Israelites, 
Why are you amazed by this? Why do you stare at us as though we had made him walk by our own power or godliness? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied before Pilate, though he had decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer released to you. You killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in his name, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through Jesus has given him this perfect health in front of all of you. And now, brothers and sisters, I'll pause just for a second. You know, that, that story of the, them healing the lame man, and this, it's, it's really cool. Um, but pay attention closely to this, this next part. Now, brothers and sisters, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your leaders also did. In this way, God fulfilled what he had predicted through all the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer. Therefore, Repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. The seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. Heaven must receive him until the time of the restoration of all things which God spoke about through his holy prophets from the beginning. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to everything he tells you, and everyone who does not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from the people. In addition, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those after him have also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your ancestors, saying to Abraham, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. God raised up his servant and sent him first to you, to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. So this is Peter, the same guy who was rebuking Jesus earlier. You know, he not only understands the glorification uh, of Jesus, and you know, he's, he's put together all these pieces of him, yes, being the prophet, but also being the suffering servant. And he's quoting all these different prophets and, and putting it all together. He understands now the glorification of Jesus through suffering, and he wants others to understand it, too. That Jesus is the suffering servant who fulfills the covenant that God made with Abraham, and who by his suffering brings salvation even to those by whose hands he suffered. He's speaking to people who were implicit in murdering Jesus and offering them salvation. That's that's just profound, and we're gonna get more. There's more on on salvation in a moment, but first I I want to read one more passage on just the glorification or the exaltation of Christ. Uh, this time um, in Philippians chapter two. Um, this was written by Paul, who, who like another awesome story of transformation. You Paul went from hating Jesus and and killing his followers to worshiping him and being the most zealous of his followers. Uh, he writes in Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. Of course, again, with the benefit of hindsight, knowing the story of Jesus and being an Old Testament scholar, knowing, being very familiar with the great scroll of Isaiah, he writes this, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the person of Jesus, God became the suffering servant. 
and is now exalted above every name. The humble, despised, rejected, spit-upon servant is Lord of all creation, heaven and earth, and under the earth, before whom all creation will one day bow. That's pretty cool. But the next question is why? You know, Jesus existed before he was born to Mary. You know, he, he is, was, and always has been God the Son, distinct but equal to God the Father, uh, which means he has always been the Lord of creation, uh, whether we knew it or not. We see that, you know, look at the Gospel of John. He talks about that. So why go through all of that trouble of, of suffering, of becoming a human and, and dying and, and explaining things to us hard-headed, sinful humans? It's obvious, I think, that it wasn't for his own sake. It was for our sake, because we needed him, and he loved us so much that he gave himself for us. And so that co- accomplished two major things. And the, the first is perhaps the most obvious, and it's, you know, why we, we celebrate communion. Uh, it's why you know, we, had, we sang songs about it today, about how his sacrifice accomplished salvation. You know, that's often the, the focus of when we talk about what Jesus did is for our salvation. And by that, I mean that his sacrifice fulfilled the law, you know, and it covered the debt of our sins. Jesus was able to accomplish this where no other human was able to, whether prophet or king or priest or otherwise, because he was sinless while nobody else was or has been since. And Isaiah does make it clear that the servant would suffer not for his own sin, but for the sin of the people. I'm going to read verse 5 of Isaiah 53 again. Um, He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, punished for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. The selfless act. The 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 theological term is propitiation. He took the place. He took our sin on himself. And Paul, again, you know, he, he was an Old Testament scholar. He was very familiar with the Old Testament. And he didn't miss, you know, this bold hyperlink from Isaiah to Jesus. And you can see it in multiples of his letters. I have a few quick verses. Um, the first is um, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's a really quotable one. A lot of people memorize that one. But it sounds really similar to Isaiah, doesn't it? Colossians 2.14. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Same idea, said a different, clever way. And then Romans 4.25 is almost a direct uh, quote of Isaiah. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So the serpent suffered as a righteous, innocent lamb by the way, it mentions him not opening his mouth, and Peter mentioned him being brought before um, the high priest and Herod and Pilate, and, and it, it, there's a specific mention uh, in Matthew where Herod is questioning him, the high priest is questioning him, and he stays silent. He doesn't, he doesn't answer their questions. Um, so just another fulfillment of that prophecy. Uh, but he ultimately provided the sacrifice to cover our sins once and for all. So we, we had the, the pleasure of um, celebrating that this morning with, with communion. We, we sang about it. But the Messiah taking on the role of a suffering servant accomplished something else as well. And, you know, it's funny. We don't really have this as, as prominently as a theme in our songs, it seems. But when Jesus began his ministry, he began preaching about God's kingdom. And he described it in ways that really contrasted the common perception of what a kingdom led by a king looks like, much like Jesus contrasted their perception of what a king must be. And it was, it was a life of selfless 
acts of service. Uh, and, and he didn't just preach about it. He lived this, this creed of love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those two commandments, which are lifted right out of the Old Testament, he said summed up the whole law. So the concept of you know, not just loving God, but also loving your neighbor as yourself uh, was nothing new. And yet, he demonstrated what it really looks like to actually live that out in a radical and controversial way. They didn't like it. They didn't like the way he defined neighbor as whoever's in need and you come across, um, and loving them as yourself, being selfless, self-sacrificing, and giving of yourself. But that's the way, this humble, servant-hearted way of Yahweh's kingdom that Jesus taught. There's a passage in Mark uh, chapter 10. I think I have this one, yeah. So 10, uh, chapter 10, verses 42 through 45, Jesus calls his disciples over. Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then Peter goes as far as to say that the suffering of Christ, not just the servitude, but the actual suffering of Christ, the sacrifice was given as an example in 1 Peter 2, 21. For you were called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So as Christians, we are to follow in the example of Jesus, in our attitudes, in our priorities, you know, not going through life looking for what we can get out of it, not assessing our relationships uh, based on how much we benefit from them, rather looking for how we can give and how we can serve. It's much easier said than done, I, I assure you. Only Jesus and only his sacrifice saves people. And only his spirit has the power to transform lives. But, He has called us, he's chosen us, his church, his body, to sacrifice our individual time, our energy, our money, and yes, even our physical comfort and well-being at times. Because in doing so, we join him in his work of, of meeting people's needs, physical needs and spiritual needs. And we point each other as a family and others who don't know him yet to the source and the sustainer of all life. Let the the suffering servant be something we reflect on as something we can be grateful for, but also follow in in the example of. One one is a little bit easier because it's just a gift. All you have to do is accept it. That's great. Oh, but then we also must follow him in his steps. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the opportunity we've had today to reflect on you, on your sacrifice, your willingness to suffer and die for us, that you also rose again and live and have been exalted and has, have sent your spirit to us to empower us to follow you. you know, we we, we know we cannot follow you in our own power. We know we are weak and sinful, but we are strong in you, and we are made strong in our weakness because you're glorified when you can be glorified by strengthening us and by working through us. And we, we just thank you for the, the blessing of that. And we just pray for, for faith that we would that you would help us in our lack of faith, that you would teach us to follow you, that you'd give us the, the sacrificial servant heart uh, 
to give of ourselves, to abandon selfishness and the pursuit of comfort and uh, superficial happiness to find the true joy and love and peace that comes with knowing you and serving you and serving others uh, as part of your church, your body, your family. I pray that, Lord, in doing so, we would be a blessing to our families and that we would we would draw other people to you as you, know, you brought healing to people and you, you served people's physical needs and Peter and John, they, they, they served people physically, which brought them then to you so that you could heal them and restore them spiritually. And that's, that's the amazing power of your work. And I just pray that you would use us Use us this week and in our lives in that way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, um, if you would stick around just for a few more minutes. Um, thank you if you joined us on YouTube. We're going to um, go ahead and end the live stream for now. But we do want to.